and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. Last week we, we talked about uh, some, some, maybe some ways individually to look at the new year and some things that I was hoping for for you, praying for for you. Um, as members of City Grace, if you follow Jesus here with us at City Grace. And today, I kind of want to back up, you know, from that zoomed-in view on the individual. Today, I kind of want to back up and look at us as a church and talk about some things. And this isn't going to be new. If you've been here for a while, for a couple of years, you maybe have even heard some of this before. But I want to look at, at, at us as a church and who we are and what we're supposed to do and, and how this is all supposed to work. Because I think a lot of times what happens in the church world is just we get this idea that, okay, I need to go to church. I need to attend a certain number of church services and just kind of make sure that I'm okay with the guy upstairs, you know, make sure that that's all good. And then someday after I pass on, you know, I'll, I'll go to heaven after I die. And, and that's just like so, such a shallow look at, at what Jesus actually came to do and to, to install here on earth, what he talked about or what he called the kingdom. Uh, and so, you know, being part of his church and, and kind of tasked with the responsibility of carrying on his church, I just want to make sure that we're always crystal clear about who we are and what it is that God has called us to do if He has called us to be a part of the church. So today's message is something that it's already in the hearts of most of us here at City Grace, and we're just kind of putting it out front again this morning. I want to put it out front again and kind of put you know, a new name on it or maybe a fresh name on it and give us all you know, kind of that thing to rally around as his church. And, and the thing, the, the kind of basic idea behind it all is that we believe that the creator God loves us more than we think and a lot of times more than we think about. Hello. We're just all convinced of that. That's why we are here. And, and when we say that God loves us more than we think or think about, we're not just talking about us, us, like us in the room. We think that us is maybe a little bit more than just the people that call this their, their church home. But God loves people. God loves our world. God loves the people around us. God loves even the people that don't love him back. I mean, he's just that. Do you guys know that Christianity is the only religion where the deity of the religion loves people that aren't even part or members of the, of the religion yet? I mean, he's just that kind of God. And, and so, you know, we believe this thing. And then I think everybody that's kind of experienced that love of Jesus along the way, when that really gets a hold of you, when it's not just an idea, when, it's a, when it becomes a truth to your heart and not just knowledge in your head, like it touches you. It changes you, man. It, it changes things. And it, it brings a new reality into existence, a new beginning. Uh, most people say, a lot of people say, everybody says, it, it, it creates a new beginning for life, a new way to start over. And, and there's this ache inside. For those of us that have experienced that, there is still an ache inside for the people that we love that haven't yet experienced this, right? We want them to feel and to know and, and to have this experience that we have. And we see a lot of times in the, in the people around us just a gap in their lives of what is and, and maybe what could be if they would give their hearts to God. And so we feel a call to go and to stand in that gap and to be the bridge between heaven and their world, right? And to hopefully bring them back into a relationship with the Heavenly Father. In fact, one of the early first Christians, um, a guy named Paul, and, and, and an incredible story, didn't show up on, on the pages of history as a Christian. He actually showed up on the pages of history as a Christian hater. And then this truth, this transformational truth of God's love changed him, and he became maybe the most prolific Christian of his time. And he writes in what we call 2 Corinthians. This is a letter he wrote to some Christians in Corinth. He wrote this, the old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God. 
Like nobody earned this, nobody bought this, nobody deserved this. It's all a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And now for those of us that have been brought back to God through Christ, God has now also given us a new gift, another thing. He's given us this task of reconciling people to him, which means the church is not supposed to be about you coming to a place and then make sure you follow some rules so you're good with the guy upstairs. It's about reconciliation. It's about relationship. It's about you coming back into relationship with the God who loved you enough to make you and to put you on this planet. And he goes on and he says, so this is how we should see ourselves, Christians. We are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. And we actually speak for Christ when we plead. Somebody say, when we plead. When we plead, we plead, come back to God. Anybody ever pleaded before? When you plead, there's like a brokenheartedness to your effort. There is, there is a deep emotional uh, element to that. And, and so we, as Christians, as those that have been reconciled to God, you know, through a gift, not of our own goodness or because we earned it or we're the right kind of people, but we have this incredible message of mercy to the hurt, to the wondering, to the wandering. We, we want to say that it doesn't have to be that way anymore. To the people that we love who are wondering why they're in pain, who are wondering about their unanswered prayers and their questions and hurts in life. God is making his appeal through us. Somebody say, through me. God is making his appeal through us, through my words, through actions, through my love. Someone would hopefully hear God saying to them, come back, come back. And so this weighs on me as a pastor and, and, and you know, as, as the leader of this church for this season. I, I think, how do I keep this mission front and center? How do I keep us from turning inward and comfortable as the church? How do we fight the tendency to, to huddle when we feel like society is kind of against you know, the church and Christianity and, and maybe Christian values? How do we fight the idea that it's us against the world and make sure that we never lose sight of the truth that it is actually supposed to be us for the world? How do we do that? How do we do that? And when days feel dark, of course, and it doesn't feel like we're doing so great on mission, we look to Jesus and we look at his example. And I love what one of his closest followers named John, he was one of the closest three guys to Jesus, what he had to say about him, that when, when the world felt like it was at its darkest point, when the powers had all risen up against God and against God's chosen people, and when God's chosen people themselves weren't very much acting like God's chosen people, when people seem to be at their lowest, that's when God came the closest. And he came the closest in Jesus. But when he came, he didn't come with, with condemnation and lightning bolts and fire and brimstone, but he actually came in grace and in truth. And John tells us this in John chapter 1. The Word, and he, he talks about that a little bit earlier in the chapter, but he's talking about Jesus here. The Word became flesh. And he made his dwelling among us. He lived here. And we have seen his glory. And John's just like blown away by this, this, this opportunity, this privilege. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Full of grace and full of truth. Both things. Not halfway grace and halfway truth, but full grace 
and full truth. And then he kind of contrasts it against what most of us think about when we think about the ideas of religion and church and and those kinds of things. And and we're going to talk about this a little bit later this year. If you're wondering kind of what to do with the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament, the rules in the Bible, you need to make sure you're here for some of the series that we're going to have later on this year. But John contrasts like the old system that people had before Jesus, the system of religion and church that a lot of us kind of fall into the trap and the ways of thinking. John contrasts all of that with what Jesus did when he came closest to humanity, when humanity was at its lowest. And he tells us, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And what John is acknowledging, because John was Jewish, John was one of God's chosen people, and what John was acknowledging was, look, we had all the rules, but the rules never made us good people. We had some good rules, but good rules don't make good people. And we all know this in our own experience, right? There are traffic laws to govern how we drive, and it doesn't make you a good driver. Some of y'all are horrible drivers. Hello. Is it you? (laughs) Okay. Didn't expect such honesty, but God bless you. We're going to have an altar call in a little bit. You're going to repent today. You're going to leave here a better driver, I'm, I'm confident of. We have tax laws in place, and tax laws don't make people generous, do they? No, in fact, the people with the most to give end up keeping the most, <laughs> right? We have child abuse laws, and it doesn't make good parents. We have spousal abuse laws, and it doesn't make good husbands or wives. Laws can be good in and of themselves, but good laws don't make good people, People, even God's people, needed something more because who they were as people did not change when the law came through Moses. It did not change through the Ten Commandments. But when Jesus came the closest because humanity was at its lowest, he brought something brand new. He brought a truth about who we are and just how messed up we are. But he brought a grace as well, a love and an acceptance and an embrace of who we were at our lowest. And then he began to elevate us and change us and transform us and Jesus was full of truth, and he was full of grace, and in him we got a huge dose of both. And here's the thing. We kind of know what grace is, right, a little bit in, in the Christianity world, and it's God's patience with us. We say it's, it's God's unmerited favor, undeserved goodness, all of that stuff. We say grace is amazing, and it is all of that stuff. But what truth came into the world through Jesus? Was it only the truth about ourselves, Or was it a greater truth than the truth about ourselves? And again, John writes about this, and and he tells a story, and we're not going to dig into it too much, but the way that John structures his biography of Jesus' public career, toward the end of that letter, Jesus is talking with Pilate, who was the Roman governor that was going to put Jesus to death, execute Jesus on the cross. And Pilate has been given the authority to decide whether or not an innocent Jesus dies of these trumped-up charges. And, and, And so he has kind of... You know, Jesus' life is in his hand, so to speak. And, and it's interesting to notice that Jesus doesn't ever argue with that, which is another whole thing. But Jesus looks at Pilate as this man stands deciding whether or not Jesus is going to die. Jesus says, the reason that I came into this world was to testify to the truth. And Pilate looks at him and he kind of sneers and he says, what is truth? And he storms out of the room because he's about to commit an injustice, a lie against this. And, and he, he accepts the testimony of lies about Jesus and who Jesus was and what Jesus was like. And he ends up sending an innocent man to his death. And in his death on the cross, Jesus answers Pilate's question about what truth really is. The truth that Jesus wanted to bring into this world is that God so loved us that when we were at our lowest, God did not run away, but God came the closest 
to us that God so loved us, that he has chosen of his own heart and of his own volition and his own will. He has chosen to forgive us and to embrace us and to welcome us back into relationship with himself. And on the cross, the truth won the victory over the lies about God's goodness. In Jesus, we see that if he died for us, then he must be, in fact, for us, on our side. And so on the cross, Jesus conquered sin and evil and death and lies. And in a world where wars are usually won by men who are consumed with the love of power, Jesus was crowned the king of every other king through the power of love. And he did it because he was full of grace. He did it because he was full of truth. He did it because when people are at their lowest, God comes the closest. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad you didn't have to clean up your act and get everything put in order and make yourself a good person before God loved you? Because we would never be loved by God if that was the condition for God loving us. But as we are, as we were, we are loved by an incredible, incredible God. But now that mission of reconciliation is given to us. We're called the body of Christ. We're called the arms and the feet and the hands and the lips and the mouth of Christ. We are the church. Grace comes into our world through Christ still, but we are Christ now. We are the body of Christ. So God's grace and God's truth comes into our world through us. This is why we exist. This is why we gather on Sundays. This is why we're here. This is why we're clapping and singing. And this is why we have small groups. And this is why we give to the needs that are around us without worrying about having enough for ourselves. Because God has promised that if we'll get in step with his mission and with his purpose for us as a church, that God will be in us and energize us and fill us and use us to bring his lost and broken world back to himself. We have God's grace in overflow, but that grace was never meant to just stay in and for ourselves. That grace was meant to flow through us as it flowed through Jesus Christ. But that kind of leaves us with an, with an uncomfortable truth. Are you fully engaged with giving God's grace away? Are you fully Deeply, daily, hourly engaged with the process and the task and the mission of giving God's grace away? Are you sharing God's grace and showing God's grace like God designed you to? Uh, and, and, and am I showing it and sharing it the way that God designed me to show and to share His grace? And that bothers me as a pastor. That part scares me to make sure that we stay on mission because we have been given so much. God help us to stay engaged in giving your grace away. And so how do we do that? And are we qualified to do that? And most of us would say, no, I don't know how to do that. And I don't know if I can. And I don't know what difference my life would really make. Hello, that's why some of us skip church. That's why some of y'all are going to skip church next weekend. It's not even the Super Bowl yet. You're not going to be here next Sunday because you think when you don't show up, it doesn't mean anything. That's why some of us won't sign up for small groups because we don't really think our attendance matters or makes a difference. And if you think that, then that will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you're right, it won't matter. It won't make a difference. But if you will remember who you are and whose you are, you will know that you have a mission, that you have design and purpose on your life. And so every moment, every opportunity, every ministry that we have going on here at City Grace, I want to be all aimed and targeted at this idea of keeping us on mission. But how do we do that? And it seems so overwhelming at times, right? And a couple of years ago, I, a few years ago now, I, I came across a resource on the study of, 
of Nehemiah, who was actually an Old Testament guy, somebody that lived way before Jesus, about maybe four, five hundred years, three hundred years before Jesus, somewhere in there. I'm throwing out numbers like I know what I'm talking about. It was a long time ago. And, and Nehemiah lived, and, and he was part of the people of God, part of the Jewish people. And the story of Nehemiah is the story of a leader who did not start out as a spiritual leader. So I like that. I can relate to that, right? He starts out as a man who did not start out as God's man. And the story of Nehemiah starts with a regular man who had a broken heart for what could have been and what should have been. Nehemiah is the story of a regular man with a broken heart for the people and the city that he loved. And you got to know a little bit of background and about 600 years before Jesus, Israel was God's people still at that time. The Jewish people were, and Babylon was kind of the world power. And the Babylonians came in to Israel, and they conquered it. And, and when they did, they kind of took the, the best and the brightest of the Jewish people, and, and they took them away to the capital city of Babylon. And that's maybe where you've heard the story of Daniel and the three Hebrew boys, and my shack, your shack, and a bungalow. You guys remember uh, those guys. And Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem was was devastated at that time. And then about 70 years after that, Persia becomes kind of the, like the big dog. And Persia actually wiped out Babylon and conquered Babylon. And, and as Persia conquers Babylon and they begin to roll into the Babylonian cities, Cyrus the Great, who was the emperor of Persia at that time, he starts looking around and all these Babylonian cities are populated with Jewish people. He's like, what are you guys doing here? Why are all these Babylonian cities full of Jewish people? Why don't you guys just go home? I'll let y'all go home. And so there was a huge portion of the Jewish people that actually went back to the land of Israel to start rebuilding the land of Israel. And then some of the Israelites stayed. Some of the Jewish people stayed in that Persian empire. And, 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 you know, and so the Jewish exiles go back to Jerusalem. They go back to the area of, of Judea, and they begin to repopulate. They begin to rebuild that area under Cyrus the Great. But as they're rebuilding it, it's just not like it was. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You ever have some? I remember we bought a Jeep Grand Cherokee a long time ago. Bought it brand new. One of the dumbest things we've ever done. One of the dumbest things we've ever done. We've done a lot of dumb things. And, and we bought a brand new Jeep Grand Cherokee, man. And Chelsea was driving it one day, and she got into an accident on the freeway. And, and, and she's okay. Um, but, you know, she got into an accident. And after that, the Jeep got fixed. But you asked Chelsea, we decided, like, it was never the same after that. It just, it just didn't feel the same, you know? And anybody ever, you know what I'm talking about? Like you have something and it's all shiny and bright and then something happens. It's just never the same. Like brand new sneakers, right? You can clean them, but it's just never the same. Anybody ever put white shoe polish on their sneakers? Don't do it. It's just, you know. But it, so they went back and they're rebuilding Jerusalem. It's just not the same. It's sad. It's not even close to its former glory. They rebuild the Jewish temple, and it's not even like a temple worth looking at. I mean, it's kind of like an Econo temple. It's just not good. And the people who remember what everything was before, they're kind of weeping, and they're upset, and things are not great. And then they, it takes them about 90 years. And about 90 years after that now, the story of Nehemiah takes place in the capital city of Persia, not in Jerusalem, but back in Persia. And, and, and Susa, Persia, it's around the modern-day border of Iraq and Iran, and Artaxerxes at that time was now the king of Persia. And this is where the story of Nehemiah takes place. And you can find this in the old part of your Bible. And he says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. So I like this, because right off the bat, he, he doesn't start out the story with like once upon a time. He doesn't start out the story with in a galaxy far, far away, right? Like, this is history. This happened, and Nehemiah is talking to us, and he says, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them 
about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and about also about Jerusalem. So Nehemiah's back in Persia, living just, I mean, the high life. Everything is good, and he and a portion of his family had stayed there. They're doing well. They're prospering. But some of the Jewish people have gone back home, and Nehemiah's excited to hear the reports. Like, how are things going back home? There's no FaceTime back then. There's no Facebook back then. They didn't have any updates, you know, no Instagram to see the progress of the walls or anything like that. And, and the family and friends come back, and he's asking them, hey, guys, how are things back home? And he can't wait to hear. It's just so exciting to hear. But then he gets some bad news because they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble. In fact, it's disgraceful. It's sad, Nehemiah. It's shameful. They're just beaten down. They're bent over. They're, they're just worked, and, and nothing is the same. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And, and that doesn't mean too much to us, but in these days, that was a sign of disgrace and shame for the city. This was the capital city of Jerusalem. And, and back then, a city without walls was a city that was vulnerable to attack. A city without walls was, and without gates was a city where nobody wanted to live. Nobody wanted to be because you could never be sure that you were safe or that you were going to thrive or be prosperous in that time because you never quite knew if you were going to make it from day to day. And he's saying, look, the walls, we've been back there for 90 years, and the walls are still broken. The church is still under renovation. The gates have been burned with fire. You don't even have doors to the sanctuary. It's a disgrace. And this is such a shock to Nehemiah because the exile was supposed to be over. That's what the Jewish people were waiting for. We get to go back home, and now it's time to go home, and it's 90 years later, and how are things going? Tell me the reports, and this is the time for God's favor. This is the time for blessing. This is our time. This is our year. And, and wait, wait, they're in, they're in great trouble? What you're saying is it's disgraceful what everything looks like, that the people of God are just existing they're not really advancing. They're not really improving, not thriving. They're just surviving. And Nehemiah tells us, like, this, this was so troubling to me. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. A grown man, a grown man, hundreds of miles from home, when he hears the report of his city and of his people, he sits down and he weeps. He weeps. And we kind of get this, right? Like, you know, sometimes you watch the news and you hear about, you know, bad weather in Boston or the drinking water in Flint and you kind of, you know, tisk tisk, you know, but West Coast is the best coast. Hey, you know, just change the channel. Or like you just move right on, right? You hear the news, but you just it doesn't really impact you. But other times you'll be looking and you'll hear about the fires in NorCal and you'll see the helicopter video footage or you'll see about the homeless issues in Fairfield. It's terrible news, terrible things that happen really close to home and it, and it stops you. And you can't quite move on and you get the remote and you're ready to click, but you can't click just yet. There's something about it that just, it makes you pause and it kind of gets there and it kind of hits a little bit close to home, right? You don't like the news, but you can't look away. And Nehemiah is hearing a news report about the people in the city that he's left, a people in a city that he had never even, even visited in his lifetime. He had never even been back there, but it was his identity. Jewish people longed for home. All these Jewish people in Nehemiah's company, all they had ever known was being a people in captivity, but there was something about home that just, you know, he had a love in his heart for home. Even though it was a home he had never been to, it was home. But the people at home were in trouble. People at home we're in great distress, distress. And, 
It's been years, maybe, since he's heard news from home. He's excited to hear the news, but as he hears the news, his heart is broken, and he sits down, and he weeps, and he can't just change the channel. This, this impacts him. This hits too close to home for Nehemiah, and he says, for some days I mourned, and I fasted, and I prayed before the God of heaven. It moved me to do something I hadn't been doing. This stirred me so much that I prayed some prayers I hadn't been praying. I asked God some things I had never asked God before. And I love this. Nehemiah actually journals his prayer for us. He he says, this is what I prayed. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. Like you're not a God that breaks your promises. You're a God that keeps your promises, your covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We're your people, God. We're your chosen people, and you're supposed to keep your promises. So God, let your ear be attentive, and let your eyes be open to hear the prayer that your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I'm praying for me, and I'm praying for the people back home. I'm praying for my homeland. Like, remember us, God. Let your eyes see us where we are. Let your ears hear us where we are. And then he says something really interesting to me. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. God, I'm not any better than anybody else. In fact, I may just be a sinner just like everybody else. We're all broken, God, and we acknowledge that in your holy presence. We're all a little messed up, God. Every single one of us has fallen short of your grace, and nobody deserves your mercies, not them and not even me. But I remember something. I like this. I like how Nehemiah goes on. We have not obeyed the commands and the decrees and the laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But I like how Nehemiah does this. God, I'm being punished because I was a sinner. I'm in this great distress, and we are because we are sinners. Because we've broken the rules, we broke your word, we broke the promise, we broke the covenant, we broke the contract, but, but if we will return to you and obey your command. And I love this, because this is all something that God had said to Moses earlier. And know what Nehemiah is telling God? Is like, you promise that if we messed up, we'd be in trouble. We're in trouble. So what that means is, you're keeping your promise. Wow. That even in his problem and in his distress, he saw it as a sign of God keeping his word. God, you promised that bad stuff would happen, and it happened. So let the next part happen too. That even then, if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, that you will gather them from there and bring them to the place that you have chosen as a dwelling for your name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and mighty hand. And for a Jewish man, nobody was under any any confusion about what he's talking about. He's talking about Egypt. Anybody remember the story of Moses and God delivering them from the land of Egypt? God, you brought us out and made us a people. We weren't a people before that. We went into Egypt as a family. We came out as a nation. We went in as just a, you know, a small group, a nomadic family. We came out as your people, your tribe, your chosen ones, God. You redeemed us by your great strength. You redeemed us by your mighty hand. Surely you didn't do all of that for nothing. So God, 
If you're the, you're the one that made us your people, then Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. And see, Nehemiah is acknowledging the common prayer of the people who were God's people on purpose, with a purpose. There is one prayer that we have, that we could be your people, and we delight in revering your name, in making your name great, by being a people who are blessed and who show kindness and mercy to the people all around us, that they will in fact see that our God is the only true God. In other words, God, if any of your people really care about your reputation and your name, there's one thing that we should all be praying about, one prayer. It's the prayer for what's broken that only you can fix. It's the prayer for the disgrace that only you can restore by more grace. One prayer, one thing for those who care about your reputation. And then Nehemiah brings it all from the corporate piece back to that personal piece for himself. And he asks God for this one thing. And he says, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Now, Nehemiah has a broken heart. And what man you're at, you're wondering, I'm going to tell you in just a second. Nehemiah has a broken heart. And Nehemiah is weeping over the condition of what he loves. He's disturbed to the point that he just can't change the channel anymore. He can't just move on like everything's normal anymore. Nehemiah knows that what people in Susa are saying about his God is not acceptable. He knows that what the people that are in his world and in his circle of influence are saying about his people and about his God, it's not okay. He knows what the people who see the condition of broken things are saying about his God because he's just the God of broken things. And so he's saying, God, I want you, I know you want to do something about this. And so I, I'm going to step out, God. Can't speak for everybody else. We're all sinners. We're all messed up. But I am going to take a step. I'm going to do something to try and start this revolution, to try and start the rehabilitation of your name, to bring your people back on purpose. But God, you can give success because you're still God. God, you can do the God-sized thing that needs to be done. God, I'm a nobody. Hello, somebody. Does that, does that echo anybody's prayers in this room? God, like, I don't feel like I'm enough. I don't feel like there's anything I can say, anything that I could possibly accomplish. What control do I really have over the pain around me? What influence do I really have to make a difference? Why, right? What could I ever say? I'm a sinner in your presence. I have no power. I have no resources. And Nehemiah admits it. I was cupbearer to the king. Walls need to be restored. I don't know how to do that. All I know how to do is serve King Artaxerxes. Gates need to be built and hung to protect your people. I can't do that. I am just a cupbearer to the king. I don't even have a special vocation. I don't have any special skills or special knowledge. I'm not very charismatic. I'm, I'm not any of these things. God, I'm simply a cupbearer to the king. I'm not a builder. I'm not a stonemason. I can't even make the hinges for the gates. I've never even been there. I don't even have a map to get there. I'm not even sure how bad really it is. I only see what's on the surface, but I know what has broken my heart. And God, you have to do something. And I am willing to risk it all to be someone that you can use. But God, I'm just telling you up front, all I am is a cupbearer to the king. And today, I want to ask every person that considers themselves a part of the City Grace family 
The question that Nehemiah had to ask himself and wrestle with himself before he prayed that prayer. And the two questions are simply this. Who are you? And what breaks your heart? Who are you? And what breaks your heart? What do you know how to do? And what do you not know how to do? What is it that's breaking your heart? What solution do you, say, do you see that is needed that you can't come up with on your own, but it is absolutely breaking your heart? Who are you? What do you have? What do you not have? What do you know? And what do you not know? Who are you? Who are you? What breaks your heart? As you stand before God at the beginning of 2020 with more prayers to pray this year, who are you? What breaks your heart? I'm Jared. Thank you. Some people showing off some past. Amen. I'm Jared. I'm pastor of this church until God moves me on, and it breaks my heart that every Sunday, 100,000 people in Fairfield wake up and have no desire at all to come love on God with us. I'm Jared, and it breaks my heart that the church God's church is seen by most people to be irrelevant at best and dangerous at worst. I'm Jared, and I believe that the church is the hope for all mankind. I believe that God's grace for this world comes through us, and yet people hear that and they yawn. They don't care. And too many in the church have forgotten that the church exists for the world. The church is not here to condemn the world. I'm Jared, and it breaks my heart that 87% of young people in our nation who go to church when they're young will walk away from their faith between 18 to 22 years old. 87% will walk away from their faith. That breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that kids in high school and middle school have 30 hours a week where they go to an environment where people tell them that God's not real and church is silly, and they only spend about three hours a week in church environments, and sometimes they hear the answers to questions they're not even asking. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that the overwhelming majority, 99.9% of the hurting and the poor and those living in broken homes around us don't join us, probably because they've never even seen our faces, much less felt our love. I'm Jared, and that's what breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that our family and our friends don't come to small groups when we invite them, and sometimes they don't even get invited. That breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that the idea of discipleship and following Jesus and spiritual maturity is too often measured by what we know instead of what we do for Jesus. It breaks my heart that when people experience worship or hear a message and it doesn't pull them closer to God and, and so they never hear God whisper through us, come home, come home, come home. That breaks my heart. It has broken my heart. But that's me. And that's why I'm doing the things that I feel God leading me to do. But who are you? What breaks your heart? Who are you? Why did God call you? Why did God choose you? Why did God save you by grace and forgive your past and give you a future? Who are you? What breaks your heart? Who are you and why are you here? What bothers you to the point where you try and move on? You try to maybe, quote, unquote, change the channel, but whatever it is that you're looking at, you know, everybody else has kind of seemed able to move on, but you just linger there a little bit longer than everybody else. What's the one thing? 
that you tell God that you're willing to give up your comfort to see a change. You're willing to risk your reputation to fix his reputation. What's the one thing that you're willing to tell God? I'm willing to take a step I've never taken. I'm willing to pray prayers I've never prayed. Somehow, God, if you could just use me to make a difference in this one thing, then God, that would make me feel full and complete and know that my life has meaning and purpose and design within your kingdom. Come on, somebody. Come on, put away your frustrations with your commute. Come on, stop worrying about the mortgage and the 401k for a little while. You have something scheduled every night of the week. Your housing housing situation may be shaky, but God, this one thing, it breaks my heart. But God, I'm not anybody special. But God, I don't have the resources to fix it. I don't know what words to say so that I can put it back together. But God, for your reputation's sake, for the sake of something broken in the people that I love, This is who I am, and this is what breaks my heart. See, God uses broken-hearted people, people like Nehemiah. So who are you, and what breaks your heart? And whatever that is, you need to figure that out, and you need to stare at it every single day. And like Nehemiah said about him and his people, that's the prayer of everyone who cares about God's reputation. That God, my heart is broken because they can't see you like I see you. Because God, they don't think about you like I think about you on the other side of what you have done for me. And we have no idea sometimes when we consider ourselves insignificant and when we consider ourselves not really part of what God's up to in the world, but we're just somebody that sometimes comes and, and, and sits on a chair, or maybe enjoys a service from time to time, we have no idea what will not be accomplished if we don't do what God designed us to do. Because that's something else that we need to learn from this story. The Nehemiah's heart was actually broken by divine design. Nehemiah didn't just have a broken heart because he was an emotional person. Nehemiah didn't just have a broken heart because he needed a safe space to express his feelings, but then he'd be okay. No, God was up to something within the course of human history, and Nehemiah was alive, and Nehemiah was in his position for that time, for that reason, for that purpose, for that prayer to do that thing. And so are you. So are you, and you, and you, and you. You, you, you. So who are you? What breaks your heart? God was up to something, and it was time. Israel had gone so far, so far, but God had planned for more. The church has come so far, but God has planned for more. And so God broke Nehemiah's heart because God chose him to do what needed to be done. God placed him in Susa. God made him the cupbearer to the king. And Nehemiah was a chapter in Israel's story. See, the story of Nehemiah isn't really about Nehemiah. Hello. The story of Nehemiah isn't really about Nehemiah. It's about what God was up to in the world and what Nehemiah did to play a part within the story that God was telling. Years before Nehemiah, it was a man named Zerubbabel who had a heart that was broken over the condition of the temple and went back and laid foundation for the new temple. After that, it was Ezra who's found out that the people didn't know what the temple was even for. They didn't even know their own contract and covenant with God. And so Ezra started what we might call Sunday school classes for people so they could learn about their relationship with God. 
And then God calls Nehemiah to go and rebuild the gates and the walls around the city of Jerusalem. Chapters and characters within the story of God's redemption for the world. And they played their part within God's story. They followed their broken heart to do what God had designed them to do. And then they move off the stage and let God use somebody else. And years later in the story, after God had used Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah and other men and other women in that long line of men and women that are used in the plan and the story of God, years later... God would stir the heart of a prophet to walk out of the Jordan River River Valley because his heart was broken for the people during a different time, the people that had moved back into the city of Jerusalem. And this man knew that these people needed a Messiah, that the world was ready for a rescuer king, that God's name was mocked by the non-Jews around them, that God's laws were mishandled by the Jewish people and God's reputation was at its lowest. And we know this prophet is John the Baptist. And John walked out onto the scene and he began to tell people, God isn't finished and God's plan is still in process. And get ready because the Messiah is coming. And then one day, our Savior walked down to John's river. And on that day, John pointed a finger because God had created John to point a finger and declare to the world, hope is here. Grace and truth is here. And he is going to take away the sins of the whole, whole world. And it all happened because men and women found their part within the story of God. They lived out their divine design. They followed what had broken their heart to be the tool and the instrument that God used to put back right what had been broken. But see, Zerubbabel, when he plays his part, he never saw Jesus' day. He just did his part, and then he passed on. But he did what God had stirred his heart to do. And Ezra, He never saw Jesus walk onto the streets of Jerusalem, but Ezra did what God had stirred his heart to do. And Nehemiah passed off the scene long before Jesus showed up. But God caused Nehemiah to notice something broken in the people and the city that he loved. And it broke Nehemiah's heart enough that he was willing to do something about it. And we, this church... The members of this church and the people that are here today hearing me talk about this, you are not here by accident. You have to know this. You have to know this. You are part of divine design. We have enough scripture to know that God is not done with the church. And if God is not done with the church, that means that God isn't done with us, which means that being used by God to do what he has brought, broken your heart to do is so very, very important. But you've got to know something this morning, that you'll never see all that God wants to do if you think that the story is all about you. You are never going to discover and witness all that God wants to accomplish if you think that this whole thing is about you and me and being comfortable. We rob God of glory when we don't accomplish what he designed us for. Somebody thinks he's unkind. Someone in our world thinks God's unconcerned. Somebody in our world thinks God's unjust. And when you, when that breaks your heart enough that you go and you love them, when you go out there and and share with them and give to them in his name, when you embrace them and welcome them in his name, what you do for them, when you do for them, what they so desperately wish that God would do for them. We change the way that they see God because they begin to see God in us. (laughs) 
But you'll never see what God wants to do if you think the story is all about you. If you never find your one thing, if you never act on it and step out and take a bold step, if you never stop making excuses, if you don't quit being too busy or quit being too fearful, if, if you don't take a baby step, you will never know what could have been because you are here for God. Yes, it's a different day than it was 20 years ago. Yes, it's a different culture, a different world, and it may require new methods and new ways of being together. It may require you belonging to small groups, and you've never been a part of small groups. It may require you kind of immersing yourself in church life more than you ever have before, right? It, it may require new ways of reaching the people that you love, but it's the same God, and it's still His plan, and He is still using people like you and me. We are God's plan. You're plan A, and there is no plan B. You're it. Turn around and tell somebody close to you, you're it. You're it. It might have a new name, and it might have a new look, but it's God's plan. It may feel a little bit different, and there's fancy lights and everything else, but it's still God's plan. Hello. You might meet at a different house this semester than you did last semester, but it's still God's plan. It's still God's church. We are still the body of Christ. So God, help us to focus on the things that stir us up. God, help us to see what is broken in our world that we just can't seem to move on from and we just can't seem to look past anymore. God, let that thing grab our attention and grab our, our, our concern and grab our prayers and drive us and humble us and use us, God, to bring about your new reality into our broken world. We are the church. We are God's people. We are God's chosen generation and we have the message of reconciliation that this world needs to hear. So God, help us to see what breaks our heart. God, help us to understand and really know with clarity that this is what I'm called to do. That maybe I can play a part and play a role in bringing this to reconciliation with you, God. Even, even though, God, all I am is a cupbearer. Even though all I do is work with the kids and check in. Even though all I do is maybe shake a hand or say hi. Even though all I do is maybe just tell somebody at work that's, that's going through something that I want to pray for them and, and, and have lunch with them and care for them. Maybe if all I do is something that I consider insignificant, God, if I give it to you, God, could you do something God-sized with my small contribution? How many of you know that it's not about you? It's not about your strength. It's not about your wisdom, your knowledge, your ability. It's about your availability. But it's not about your ability. It's not about your skills and your talents. It's about your God. It's not your story. It's His story. It's His story of grace, and love, and beauty. It's His story of redemption. It's his story that has been going on for thousands of years. And by grace and by mercy, somehow I, without ever doing anything to deserve it, I've been called to taste of this grace and mercy. I've been called to be covered in his love, his kindness. My past has been washed away. He's called me by his name. And now I stand here as a part of his body. And I'm just Jared. I'm nobody, y'all. Hello. You know, 
I lost some weight this past year, and JL was teasing me. It's a shame you lost all that weight so you could be fat. <laughs> My daughter is just like her dad. <laughs> Nobody. I overeat sometimes. I think I have ADD. I'm not really sure. Squirrel. I'm really bad like that. Like, I really, Lacey works with, Lacey's our church manager. For those that don't know her, Lacey could tell you she gets so frustrated with me because I just get distracted all the time. I'm nobody. Hello, did y'all hear my voice crack this morning? It's bad. I'm not even going through puberty anymore. I'm pretty sure that stopped like last year. I'm nobody. God called me. God called me. I don't deserve it. God, help me, help me, help me, help me. You have chosen these things that break my heart. God, use me somehow. I, I know what I have, and God, I'm very much aware of what I don't have. What I am, I give to you. What I have, I put back to you. Like five loaves and two fishes, can you please take what I put in your hands and begin to multiply? Who are you? Who are you? What breaks your heart? Did you think that your salvation was just about you? It's not. Did you think that His grace was only big enough to cover your life? It's so much bigger. It starts with you. But then you have to learn to let it flow through you and change the world around you. Can we all stand this morning? I wonder, these are some things that I dream about. What if we could somehow make faith and following Jesus so attractive and meaningful that 100% of our kids never walk away from their faith? That's what I dream. What if we begin to meet the needs of the hurting and the marginalized in our community so much that if anyone ever did want to close our church doors, that our community would stand in protest and march outside to make sure that City Grace stays in existence? What if we had that kind of reputation for God's kingdom? What if we had that kind of name in our city? What if they said about us that they do too much and they love too well? We can't see city grace go away. Hello. What wouldn't you give to see a wayward son or daughter be brought back into the arms of Jesus? What wouldn't you give or give up to hear a loved one loving on the name of Jesus, worshiping the name of Jesus? See, you'll never know. You'll never know what hangs in the balance of you not allowing your heart to be broken over something that's broken around you. You'll never know. Is anyone brokenhearted today? Anybody brokenhearted in this room? Can we all close our eyes and bow our heads? Come on, all over this room. Nobody peeking, nobody looking around. Just, I, I, want total, I want a chance for total transparency and honesty in this room this morning. Does anyone have a one thing that, that you want to come talk to God about this morning? We're going to sing a song in just a moment, and you just want to come up to the front and, and just kind of bring it to God's attention again. Or maybe... Maybe this morning you want to talk to God because you don't have something. Maybe you're not really sure who you are and what thing it is that breaks your heart. And maybe you want to come and talk to that, to talk to God about that. Maybe you want to, you know, maybe your heart's breaking because your heart's not already broken. Maybe you're accepting something that God never meant for you to accept. Maybe, maybe he's, you know, it's time for you to be bothered by something that has never really bothered you before. Maybe, maybe God wants to bother you so that you can become part of his plan to fix it.
For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.